I resisted doing a podcast for a long time. And then Tim Ferriss, who has a, an audience, millions of people every week, he asked me to come on as a guest. I don't think he understood what was going to happen, but the same way, like I told you that story about Lyndon B. Johnson, and I, I can tell stories like that for hours and hours. And in fact, we, we talked for like three hours, just story after story after story. And I've it heard it. A huge response. And he immediately said, Cal, you got to start your own podcast. But I was at the time, I still am, but not to the same level, a technophobe. And so the idea of like getting the mics and connected to the computer and figuring it all out, it just scared me. And I thought, oh, what if I do the interviews and I don't record it right? It, and it was so foolish of me. But he kept coming back to me and said, you have to do this. You have to do this. And so finally, I, I have breakfast at the time we can't do it now, especially since I just moved. But I was having breakfast with Larry King, the CNN broadcast legend, every day for 10 years. And we became very close friends. And finally, Tim said, look, just go interview Larry and send it to me. And I'll prove to you that you should have a podcast. So I said, okay, all right. And I went and did it. And as soon as I did it, I said, oh, wow. This feels so right. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Think of someone accomplished, someone famous, someone you truly admire. Have you met them? If so, how did it go? What did you talk about? If not, what would you talk about? What questions would you ask them? For Keith and I, today's guest is just that person. His name is Cal Fussman, and he's the long-term writer-at-large for Esquire magazine and their What I Learned series. He's also host of the Big Questions podcast. Cal has interviewed everyone, and I mean everyone. Mikhail Gorbachev, Jimmy Carter, Bill Maher, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Jack Welsh, Robert De Niro, Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino, George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Bruce Springsteen, Dr. Dre, Quincy Jones, Walter Cronkite, Woody Allen, Barbara Walters, Pele, Yao Ming, Serena Williams, Danny DeVito, Eric Clapton, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Muhammad Ali, just to name a few because that's only scratching the surface. For amateur interviewers like us, today's conversation was like getting to play 18 holes with Arnold Palmer. It's like being one degree away from Kevin Bacon. Yeah, Cal interviewed both of them, by the way. Cal is literally one of the best in the business. We'll talk about his extraordinary career, his surprising new mission in the world of medicine, and most importantly, how all of us can be more aware, more thoughtful, and effective with the questions we use. With that said, let's get started. Today, super excited here, we have Mr. Cal Fussman with us. Cal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be with you both. Well, same here. Cal, I'm going to start a little different here. And this is a selfish question because I'm a parent. I've got two kids. My three-year-old recently when we picked her up from school, how's your day? 
starting to get that uh, that answer. I'll talk about it later. I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> now, you know, silly me, I, I thought that we were about 10 years out from having my kids become such challenging interview subjects, but, you know, we're there. So that, you know, that's part of the journey here. So my question's not, my God, Cal, what do I do about this? How do I get her to talk to me? <laughs> I'm, I'm more curious because you've interviewed just about everyone we can imagine. I'd love to know a little bit more, one, about your kids. Tell us a little bit about them, but how you think about conversations with children, especially your own kids. What have you learned there? And actually what I'm going to pass on is some advice that a Nobel Prize winner uh, in the area of science passed on. And the name escapes me, but the advice doesn't. <laughs> Every day, kids go home from school and the parents say, hey, how was school today? And the kids say, okay, or what'd you learn in school today? Nothing. And this one guy's parents asked the question differently. What good questions did you ask today? And it actually forced him to number one, think of good questions <laughs> when he was going to his classes so that when he came home, he had answers for his parents. Because if you ask somebody, what'd you learn in school today? I would say nine out of 10 times you're gonna get nothing. And it's because they don't wanna talk about it or maybe they think they didn't learn anything. But if you ask the question through questions, it'll make the kid think. Love it. But if it doesn't work today, I'll, uh, you know, have to send you an email for another one. <laughs> yeah, you, gotta, you gotta give it a little time because it'll only be in the next week where maybe a good question started to come out because people do not think in terms of good questions these days. And I'm, and I'm talking about a younger generation. There's a reason for this. It's not their fault. But when we want to ask questions now, even if you want to know what is the population of Cary, North Carolina, we don't ask it that way. We go to Google and type in population carry. And that has taken the question out of the equation. Hmm. We're not used to asking a full question. And you see this playing out in all areas, even in television through journalism. I, I'll give you the best example. Now they've got interviews with the coaches as the coaches coming off the field at the end of the first half. And you, everybody knows the picture. Coaches kind of either jogging in and the reporter stops them, has a microphone. It's, it's like one or two questions. You don't hear a question now. What you hear is, coach, tell me about the first half. 
And that basically invites the coach to say anything he wants and then go on his way. And it looks like the reporter has done her or his job, but they are not asking the question. And it's very different from asking somebody why or how. And I believe that kids are not trained now to ask the why and the how. And in fact, what happens is, and this has gone on for a long time, you are at your most curious when you're four years old. They've done research studies on this that show kids can ask up to 300 questions a day to their parents. Drive the parents nuts. Why, 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 why? Everybody, I'm sure you may be going through this now. Oh, it's, it's just starting. It's, uh... Okay. Watch what happens. And maybe you can keep this on the right track. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad. What's your child's name? Zoe. Oh, I'm so glad we're, you started me off like this because this can have a huge impact on Zoe's life. <laughs> Because what, think of what would happen to Zoe if we didn't have this conversation. What would happen is she would start to drive you nuts with all the whys, 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 whys. And then when she turned five, she'd go into a kindergarten classroom and be told, okay, class, you may have a question, but you can't just blurt it out everybody's got to raise their hand and get called on to ask their question. So things can be nice and orderly. And that's exactly what happens. We kind of stuff down the questions at that point. And then it's the teacher that starts to ask the most questions. And You'll start to see as the years go by, at first the kids got their hands raised up, to call on me, call on me. And then by the time they're in junior high school, nobody's raising their hands. And then you go to college and it's, it's just being curious, just doesn't have that same enthusiasm that it did when you were three or four. And then you get your first job and you don't understand something and you really need to know the answer. Do you ask the question and admit that you don't know what you're doing? <laughs> or do you just kind of stuff it down and just wait to see how somebody else does it and never let anybody know that you're in that situation? Yeah. And what you start to see is questions just become suppressed and we don't lose our childhood curiosity. We never lose it. It's always there. But it's as if we're shoveling dirt over it. We're burying it. And you need to pay careful attention to it and nourish it to keep it alive and just as enthusiastic as when you're Zoe at age three. Hmm. So you now have in your pocket the whole plan to make sure that Zoe's childhood curiosity stays with her till 100. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this until now, but before the whole pandemic started, I was really getting into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
And just before February, I was actually going to bring Zoe by. She's still a little young to start, but the guy I've been training with, we were sitting there one day talking about this, and I said, I'm just amazed, both of them, you know, the one-year-old and three-year-old, how, how Zoe and Vivi, how, they, how flexible they are. I mean, without any effort, they can just bend down all the way, touch their toes, you know, practically do the splits. I said, what, what age do they, they lose that? And he starts laughing. He says, it's not an age. It's just when they stop using it. He said, it does, it, yeah, it's the same idea, right? It's exactly the same. And it's really important, especially in this time where with Google, all the answers are available. I mean, that wasn't the case when I was three years old or when I was 10 or 20, I mean, you might be able to go to the library and look in a world book encyclopedia, but it's not this instant gratification of just typing in population Raleigh and getting a number, a precise number. And, and I think that makes people feel somewhat entitled that the answers are all theirs but they don't realize that they are getting all the answers, but they may be losing the question. So Cal, you live in the realm of questions. I mean, an interviewer, a podcaster, how did you maintain your enthusiasm for it? I'll, I'll tell you a story. Goes back to a day in November, 1963. Friday afternoon, I want you to imagine me, I'm in second grade. I had just turned seven the week before. Sitting in Miss Jaffe's class, smallest guy in the room. And Miss Jaffe leaves the classroom. And she comes back like two minutes later, a different person. Her clothes were the same, but she was completely pale and she starts to talk in a voice that was so careful that it was kind of scary even and she tells us that president john f kennedy has just been shot well i was living in new york at the time and this was early afternoon, school was let out. We all run home, turn on the TV and Walter Cronkite, the CBS broadcaster, basically the huge percentage of the country would tune into him. He has something that we don't find on TV now complete trust from everybody. And he tells the nation that President Kennedy has been assassinated. And that's all anybody's talking about. And later on in the day, the Vice President, Lyndon B. Johnson, is sworn in as the new president. And that night, my parents sit down at the kitchen table and they're talking about the impact that this might have on me because this is the first time that I'd ever really 
experienced death. And they didn't know how I was going to take it. They didn't know if I would have bad dreams. My younger brother, he's like three and a half years younger. Uh, they, they didn't know what he was making of everything. So they, they called me over to the kitchen table and said, Cal, it's a terrible thing that happened today, but we want you to know this has actually happened before and the country has a plan for it. And that's why, as you've learned, the vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, is now the president. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up, Saturday morning, you're going to have breakfast just like you do every day. You're going to go out and play just like you did last Saturday. And things are going to return to normal. So we just want you to know you can go to sleep and not have to worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. So they tell me this, they go off to see my brother. And I'm left at this kitchen table trying to make sense of this whole thing. And I'll show you how naive I was. I thought if you had a middle initial, that means you got to be president. <laughs> because the only people I ever heard, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Harry S. Truman. I don't think oh, Ulysses S. Grant had one. He had to, he had to make one up. Presidents had middle initials. And so I'm thinking in my head, well, this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson, he had to know he was going to be president from the time he was a kid. <laughs> so what's he thinking? Is he happy to be the president? Or is he sad to be the president? Because it's, it only happened because of the assassination. And then I thought, oh, man. Maybe he's scared to be the president because they might try and kill him too. Hmm. So I'm left at the table wondering what was going on in Lyndon B. Johnson's mind when he took that oath of office for president. And I couldn't figure it out. So I picked up a piece of paper and pen and I start writing. Dear President Johnson, how does it feel? <laughs> and I spell out some of the ways I thought he might be feeling. I asked if there were others, and I wished him well. And we had just learned how to address an envelope <laughs> shortly before, which is probably why I had the idea in the first place. And I fold up this little letter, I get the envelopes, I knew where they were, the stamps were nearby, you had to lick them and put them in the corner back then. And I write on the envelope, President Lyndon B. Johnson, the White House, and I put my name and my return address in the top left hand corner, lick the stamp, don't tell anybody about it, just put it in my pocket. And the next day, when I went out to play, I dropped it in the mailbox. So as time passed, things did return to normal. It was crazy because as 
anyone who was old enough to be around then knows the guy, the suspect in the case, Lee Harvey Oswald, was shot almost immediately uh, as he was uh, moving through a jail. And so the whole country was in an uproar. But to be seven and living in a cocooned life, uh, it returned to normalcy pretty quick. Well, as time goes by, I start to forget about this letter. And about six months pass, and my mom comes racing up the steps to our apartment, holding an envelope in her hand from the White House addressed to me. <laughs> and she gets up, and the amazing thing about it as we open it up was the respect that this letter had for me. It wasn't written to a second grader. It was written with reverence. And we knew that because when I got to the second sentence, it started something like, in answer to your query, and I had no idea what a query was. <laughs> and so what I did know was that all of a sudden the apartment was filling up with people. Everybody wanted to touch the letter from the president. Word got to the principal of my elementary school. Principal wanted me to bring it in. And all of a sudden, the smallest kid in his second grade class, smallest guy, was suddenly a very big man. And it taught me a lesson that to this day guides my life. And that is, a good question can get you to the most powerful people on earth. Hmm. And it led me many, many years later to be able to interview the icons who've shaped the last 75 years and across the board, business, sports, culture. And because I go into those interviews, with the uh, curiosity that Zoe has now at three years old, I never lost that childhood curiosity. You still have that letter? Do you want to know something very interesting? I just moved across the country and there's all these boxes all over the place and I'm looking through them and I'm, and I'm saying, oh, like I haven't found it yet, but I took a photo of it right before I just like I had I had a, like a feeling like uh oh what if all the boxes don't arrive so there's still a bunch more boxes to go but I'm glad I took that photo uh, but if it is lost it's gonna be uh twisting in my stomach mm. yeah, it's probably in there somewhere it's so strange I mean before you jumped on Keith and I were literally talking about JFK, which we don't do very often, but uh, that's amazing because it wasn't like he had any shortage of correspondence at that point coming in. I mean, I, you know what? Amazing thing about it. I met his biographer and his name is eluding me. Uh, and it, it'll come to me in a second. He lives on Long Island and he's basically devoted his life 
to understanding everything about Lyndon B. Johnson. And this letter was sent by his personal secretary, Juanita D. Roberts. And when he heard that word, he's Juanita D. Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> it became so important to him. And I'm going to go up and check those boxes. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Um, guys, a number of different ways we can go. We're going we're gonna to do a, a sharp pivot here because this is a medical program. So I, I want to make sure we don't miss this towards the end. Um, but I saw that you were an emergency medical tech at some point during the many adventures you've had. Correct. What's going on there? Tell us about that. So this is what happened. I started to travel around the world without a home when I was about 24 years old, 23, 24. Uh, I had wanted to be a newspaper columnist and my whole experience from that question sent me to journalism school and I actually saw my face, uh, my, my photo over a column in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch when I was very young and it was almost like I had achieved my childhood dreams at a very young age and come to the realization of like, wow, I'm going to be, is this what I'm going to be doing for another 40 or 50 years? Because uh, I was starting to understand how wide the world was and how much was out there that I wanted to see. So I took off on a trip and started out, it was supposed to be about a month or so to Europe with friends and it just kept on going. And I had very little money. And so what I would do is I would board trains and buses. And after a while, it didn't even matter where they were going. What mattered to me was who looks interesting that has an empty seat next to them hmm. because as I'm walking down that aisle, I know, all right, I got to pick just the right empty seat because once the train starts rolling again, conversation's going to start. And by the end of that conversation, I need this person to invite me home because otherwise I had no roof over my head <laughs> and I didn't have the money to stay in hotels night after night after night. And I became really good at this. And once people took me home, they started to invite their friends and their relatives who would, would invite me home to their places. And I started to be passed around the world. And I'm doing this and going all over the place. And it was just great because for me to wake up with that childhood curiosity, not knowing what was gonna happen that day that was to me the essence of life. And so I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and occasionally I would come home and see my parents, see my friends. Uh, if I needed to 
make some money to keep the trip going. I would write a magazine piece or two and pocket the cash and head out again. But it occurred to me that, you know, I'm ending up in some really remote places. And I, I should just know a little about my body in the case of an emergency. I'm like, what do you do in an emergency when there's like nobody around? And so I was visiting friends in St. Louis and I saw there was a program, EMT, emergency medical technician. And I think it was, it might've been six months or something like that. And so I just decided to do it and I loved it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll ride an ambulance for a while, just see what that's like. But right when I graduated from this school, a call came into the school from Barnes Hospital, which was the biggest hospital and is from the emergency room. And they said, you know, we're looking for an emergency room technician. Is there somebody that you would recommend? And the guy running this school said, oh, I got just the guy for you. <laughs> and he sent me over and I started to work in the emergency room at Barnes Hospital. And it was an amazing experience, but most noteworthy for me now. And like you guys definitely have to understand this, what it's like to work in a hospital in an emergency room when people come in and stuff is not going well and they have this look on their face that just says you're gonna help me right i never forgot that look ever ever and i i know what it must feel like to be a doctor or a nurse and see that look. And even though I was like doing EKGs and taking blood, I wasn't like operating on anybody. I understood that look. And so after a while, I want to get back on the road again. I started traveling again and my life took me around the world for many more years. So I met a beautiful woman on a beach in Brazil and that ended the trip because we got married and I had to get to work. And so I went back to journalism started writing for Esquire magazine and went off to interview Mikhail Gorbachev and Muhammad Ali and Richard Branson. And the story goes from there to a place in February. And I'm starting to see people getting furloughed and fired from their jobs for no fault of their own. It's strictly because of the coronavirus. And about, I think it's 49% of Americans get their insurance through their employer. And I just started thinking like, what are these people gonna do? We're in the worst possible time to be without health insurance. And you know, there are plans like COBRA that allow you to pay for your own insurance, but generally people who are working at a job and getting their insurance taken care of, they don't realize that, all right, if you take out COBRA, now it's gonna be like 75% more 
than you're normally paying, and now you have no income. And I started to think, my goodness, what happens if there are like mass layoffs and mass firings and people don't have insurance in the time of the pandemic? And I just realized this is wrong. It's just not right. Now, I, I should have dropped in a little something in that story. Uh, the past four years, I'd gone from interviewing to speaking about interviewing and speaking about the power of questions. And I actually spoke at hospitals and when was hired by hospitals to come in, find their stories and tell them about their, their own stories. So I was getting, I had my fingers sort of on the pulse of what was going on. And I could sense that there was a lot of conflict and started to talk to doctors. And I found out that every day of the year, a doctor in America commits suicide. And there's a tremendous burnout. And so it really made me see, man, we're getting this from every side now. There's going to be a lot of people without insurance that are gonna be really nervous about taking them care of themselves during this pandemic. At the same time, we're, we're really gonna be putting pressure on our doctors, our nurses, all our workers who are on the front lines of this. And we're already feeling a sense of burnout. And I just realized this needs to be reshaped. And so <laughs> I thought to myself, okay, you know, I got about at best 33, 35 years to live. What would be a good thing to do in that time? And I thought, why not jump in and try to use my questions to help reshape healthcare in a way that would make everybody happy. And that's what I decided to do. And I just turned my podcast toward it where I'm just beginning to interview not only doctors or former surgeon generals, but people that like a college football player who becomes paralyzed in a game and, and talk out what his healthcare experience was like. And it actually was amazing because the NCAA has catastrophic injury insurance and he is completely taken care of. And I'm beginning to think, well, why couldn't everybody be taken care of like that? And I realize I'm looking at this from a very optimistic point of view, but bottom line is, what if we, we just started to look at reshaping healthcare the way Elon Musk might? What would come out of that? And I have no answers for anybody. I'm not on a, I'm not preaching. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm just going to ask questions and try and convene people 
to listen to the answers and see what improvements could be made. So it's really a simple process and I'm certainly no expert in healthcare, but I'm pretty good at asking questions. And it seems like the questions can be used to make everybody's life in healthcare better. Are there certain thought leaders that you're seeking out to ask these questions or is the approach, let's bring everyone who has a stake in the game, which is arguably everybody, and ask the questions of them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wasn't sure what to do or how to do it because it's so huge. And I reached out to Seth Godin. He's marketing guru. Uh, and he thinks a lot about these things because, you know, what he was telling me is, Cal, you're going to need to create a story if you want people to come along on your journey with you. What is that story going to be? And he gave me a lot of ideas on how to move forward. But I think the best one was, look, Al, you're never going to learn about medicine or healthcare in, in a way that would put you on the same latitude as somebody in, as an expert in healthcare. But you have a way of convening people. You have a way of asking questions that doesn't alienate people. It makes them curious. And I've always said, the best questions make the person asked just as curious about the answer as you are. Maybe they're even more curious. So simply asking these questions to these thought leaders, and not only that, but to people that the thought leaders might not have thought about their opinions, but maybe they have something interesting to say, and maybe it can be useful. So I'm just going to use my questions and my curiosity to find out what people's pain points are, where things need to be improved, and to see what kind of answers that I get, and to see if there are people out there who'd like to implement them. Is there a root question that you ask of everybody? One question that I kind of like in this time for people in healthcare is if, if you had one of those, Aladdin's lamp and a genie popped out and asked, if you could change anything at all in the field of healthcare, what would you wish for? And of course, Seth Godin said, well, everybody knows you asked the genie for more wishes. <laughs> the genie answers, right? But I think that everybody in healthcare, if they thought about it, and it might take them a while because there may be many things that they want to change, but everybody's would have a wish. 
And if I hear enough of those wishes, I'll understand that, okay, so many people are wishing for this one thing. What can we do to make that wish come true? There's a, there's a book, and I, we're on Zoom, so I can show you. It's called The Doctor is Burned Out. Uh, it's written by a guy named Dr. Jeff Moody. He's a UCLA-trained urologist. And on the front page of the introduction is a keyboard. You can see it. That yeah. is smashed in half. Yeah. Uh, because of like all of the regulations regarding billing that were taking his time away from his patients and in his mind, not allowing him to do his job. And so I'm, I'm sure in his mind, if you could take all the billing away from doctors, because I think many of them feel like they went to medical school and then they came out into the world as accountants. I wonder what doctors would say to that. If, if we could take billing out of your life, how would your job be? Would you like it better? Would it give you a sense of freedom? I, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. And it really speaks to my approach. I'm not coming with an agenda. Right. I just want to know what doctors and nurses are feeling now. And then let's talk about it because the other thing is, you know, doctors, they're, they're led to be perfect. They can't show weakness for, for many reasons. And look, they're human like everybody else. I mean, I was talking to a doctor who said, that many physicians he knows are like traveling a hundred miles in order to see a therapist who they pay in cash so that nobody is going to know what they're going through. And I, I think uh, that's, it's just crazy. And I, 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 spoke, I spoke at a group of dermatologists, pimple poppers, <laughs> like, and nobody calls up a pimple popper at three in the morning, okay? <laughs> you're going to be a doctor and you're going to pop pimples, then, you know, you're going to have a more relaxed life than you will if you're on call and you're rushing into the hospital. And you would have been shocked. I did I moderated an interview with one of the dermatologists, Dr. Reagan Anderson, and we talked about all the pressures that everybody was under. And then afterward, we set it up so that the doctors could speak with one another about these pressure points. And everybody was set up so that there was the same confidentiality code that the doctors honor with their own patients. So they could have these this short conversation back and forth and basically reveal the stresses that they were under and the pain points they were feeling. And 
that commerce, you could just see the energy coming off this floor of people. They wanted to release this stress. And I just don't know how much that is being done on a level that should be acceptable to us all. Because we cannot put doctors and nurses through the stress of this pandemic and just assume that they're gonna be perfect and they can handle this and that's part of the job. They're humans and we need to care for the people who are caring for others because if that link goes down and you don't have people to care for others, the whole system gets swamped. Right. So these are the things that I'm thinking about. Yeah. and that I'm just asking questions about. And I'm just starting now on the journey. That's why I'm so grateful that you had me come on uh, because you're actually forcing me to articulate something that I'm just kind of taking steps toward. I don't, I don't really know where I'm going. I just know that I am going with my questions in my pocket and that usually they take me to a magical place. Yeah. Yeah. We feel it's the same way about the podcast some days, right? Yeah. I mean, we know what, why we like to do it, but uh, who knows what direction we're going in. That's what makes us so much fun. That's right. There you go. It, it, it's funny. It does circle back to your advice to Zoe at the beginning. Um, you know, the question, what good questions did you ask today? I mean, that's one of the problems with medicine right now is we doctors are supposed to have the answers. We're not, it, we're not encouraged to ask more questions. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the, with healthcare? What's wrong with society? And if you give us the freedom to ask those questions, we may find answers. That's a possibility. So maybe just being able to be in a room with you and ask these questions will give us at least some outlet that we find at least a direction to go. This is where I'm going. And as I said, I have no agenda and a lot of people that they they point fingers, they have conflicts. Uh, I was moving across the country, and right before I moved, I got food poisoning. And it's supposed to go away after a day, and it, it didn't. And it's in the time of the virus, and. I didn't know about going to see a doctor even during the time of the virus. But after a week, this I was over the toilet the whole time and I knew, okay, I, I got to get this looked at and went to the doctor. Doctor was great, got an antibiotic and I was moving right after that and that antibiotic saved me. So I'm very grateful to the people who produce that antibiotic. I'm very grateful to the insurance companies that if I need some kind of surgery, it's going to be taken care of. I'm, I'm not here to hurt anybody or to point a finger at anybody. I'm just asking us all to come together and listen to some questions and see 
what answers come out of us in order to use them to make things better. It's really a very simple thing. And maybe because it is so simple, I am ignoring the enormity of <laughs> what happens when I say, yeah, I'm going to try and reshape healthcare. Hey, you're in the rabbit hole now, so uh, <laughs> you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Cal, like, I know we're getting close to the time here, so um, a couple more questions here. But uh, I, I noticed this a while back. We had a guest, Jonathan Gruber. He's an economist at MIT. And I had sent him a message based off of a paper that he had just published. And it made the news. I mean, it was in the Atlantic and New York Times, and um, so it wasn't completely obscure. But he writes back to me, he'd love to come on. He says, I also have a lot of experience in public policy. We can talk about that, too. That's like, wait a second. So that's when I went to his Wikipedia article, of course. I don't usually start there. And I completely forgot about him. He was a lightning rod during the, Obama, or the Affordable Care Act uh, debates. He was one of the chief architects, actually, of Obamacare. And he worked with Mitt Romney when he was the governor of Massachusetts previously. Whoa. And he had one of these, you know, these hot mic moments where he was talking about, let's just say, you know, it wasn't a glowing, um, you know, description of the electorate and people's knowledge of health care. And he got in a lot of trouble for it, even though he's not a, a uh, elected official himself, to the point where, you know, President Obama said, I've never heard of this guy. I don't know him. Nancy Pelosi said, no way. I don't. I don't. And of course, that wasn't true. He was very involved with everything. So I was a little nervous talking to him because, you know, I thought this isn't normally what we do. We don't jump into policy, especially like jumping right into the deep end here. But and Keith, may, you know, he may have some some other thoughts, too. But after spending an hour with him, one, he's done all sorts of other research besides this. Two, he's 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 a brave guy. He has no problem. I told him, I said, I said I said, man, you get in the arena. You're on Fox News. You're on MSNBC, CNN, PBS. You're all over the place. Still are. Like he says, yeah, I'd have no problem. He says, I was on Fox News a week ago. He said, I have no problem getting out there and doing that. But I thought we had a great conversation because we were genuinely curious in what he was working on now, not wanting to talk about something before. And we weren't trying to debate him or go head to head. And I found a lot of people like him in these types of positions. You don't know them at all. But when you get a chance to meet them and sit down with them, and learn their side of things, which is a lot more advanced than mine, to be honest with you. I mean, if I was going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy and try to pin him to the mat because I think he's <laughs> wrong about something, I mean, that's that's just silly. It's not going to happen. But he, I can certainly learn from him. And that goes all the way back to podcasting here. I just think this medium is a little unique. It's It allows you to have these conversations, to share them, allow other people to sit in on your conversations in a way that, I don't really think exists anywhere else, and maybe even less so today. But I'm curious. Tell us about your experience. You've been doing podcasts for a, for a little bit now. What do you think about it, and how is it different, better, worse than than writing things down in print? It's amazing for me to admit that I resisted doing a podcast for a long time, and then. Tim Ferriss, who has a, an audience, millions of people every week, he asked me to come on as a guest. And I don't think he understood what was going to happen. But the same way, like I told you that story about Lyndon B. Johnson, and I, I can tell stories like that for hours and hours. And in fact, 
we we talked for like three hours just story after story after story and i heard it a huge response and he immediately said cal you got to start your own podcast but i was at the time i still am but not to the same level a technophobe and so the idea of like getting the mics and connected to the computer and figuring it all out it just scared me and i thought oh what if i do the interviews and i don't record it right it, and it was so foolish of me but he kept coming back to me and said you have to do this you have to do this and so finally i i have breakfast at the time we can't do it now especially since i just moved but i was having breakfast with larry king the cnn broadcast legend every day for 10 years and we became very close friends and finally tim said look just go interview larry and send it to me and i'll prove to you that you should have a podcast so i said okay all right and i went and did it and as soon as i did it i said oh wow this feels so right and that's how it got started and at the same time what you're talking about what you see on tv has shifted and we don't see long interviews anymore you used to be able to see larry interview somebody for an hour every night now you're not really seeing interviews you're seeing fights you're seeing crackling tension and i think something has gotten lost in that and i realize that the stations are set up to bring the viewers what they want to hear but it really seems like podcasting has filled this void to allow anybody to just put on some earbuds and listen to an authentic conversation and learn something for an hour or longer and thank god for it uh, because it is the place where great questions are being asked oh we're right at the hour too that's right <laughs> I don't, that's it's a perfect ending well done <laughs> it is yeah I, I can't think of a better well there's 20 million other things i want to talk about <laughs> but uh man um but do you have a few more minutes here cal Sure. I'm, I, I love this conversation. And I, you know what? I got a question for you. And I know you got another question for me. So go ahead and ask, ask a few more questions. And then we'll, we'll get at the last home and away series question. All right. If you, if you uh, indulge me for a second, I'm going to tell a quick story. And this is, sure. this is about three years ago. And Keith and I had just been doing this podcast for not even a year at that point. So it's, uh, it's just an interesting day that we uh, got up in the morning and Zoe, who we've been talking about, that was her very first day going to daycare or school. And my wife, of course, would have nothing to do with this task. So that was left to dad. And I took her in that morning. And it was, it's just one of those things. No one else, no one could have ever explained to me what it's like putting your child into the hands of strangers. Certainly not strangers today. We love them, but it's, and you know, she kind of looks back at you and then you, you walk out. It's, it's just, <laughs> Well, I wasn't ready for that, and and I probably wouldn't have left, but I had to get back 
because that very morning we were interviewing Gavin Francis, the Scottish physician who lived in Antarctica, wrote a wonderful book about it, which I think he actually won the Scottish National Book Award for that. But we spent over an hour with Gavin talking about living in Antarctica, being the only doctor at this base, his journey down there over an ocean freighter. And we even, I think at one time, talked about seeing the solar eclipse in Antarctica. It just happened to be passing over when he was stationed there. We wrapped things up. I said, Keith, I got to go. I, my day is cleared up. I've, I've, I'm going to make it, I think. I hit the road. And Cal, you know a little bit now, uh, you know, North Carolina here, you've been through here. Uh, I had uh, headed east on I-40, heading down I-95, because that very day, the solar eclipse was coming over the United States. And I was going to make it. <laughs> I had maybe 20 minutes to spare. And it was this one little area just south of the North Carolina, South Carolina border. Got down there. There's nowhere to park. It's some, just off of the interstate somewhere. I'm driving around. I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss this thing because I'm, you know, country road here in the middle of nowhere. Finally find this cell phone tower. Drive towards that. And I've got literally like 15 minutes to spare at this point. So I get out. And I didn't even have those special goggles because they had shortages in, on these things. So I had to make this little box contraption to look at the reflection of it. So, so crazy. And then it happened. All of a sudden, everything around me turns dark. Yeah, the birds stop chirping. You see these little white squiggly lines, everything they had described. It was as if time just froze for a moment. And then uh, it was done. And I'm looking around and thinking, well, I mean, where the heck I am? <laughs> and I got to get back home. <laughs> so I hit the road. There's a little traffic. And this day would have been memorable no matter what. I mean, I never would have forgotten this day. But I just happened to, you know, put in a podcast. And there you are talking to your very good friend, Larry King, interviewing him. And uh, there's this back and forth discussion uh, about two, I mean, I'm going to tell you, two legends. You know, I, I don't know who you guys haven't interviewed between the two of you. And just two guys talking about this and about his experiences. I didn't know much about him at that point. And the point of this whole thing is, like I said, I would have remembered that day no matter what. But I remember listening to that interview. It actually enriched my experience in an otherwise pretty awesome day. And I got to travel to Antarctica behind the microphone. And then just being a listener, I got to sit in with you guys. I mean, that's what the podcast has meant to me and what it's done for me. It's, it's just an experience unlike anything else I could have imagined. And that's it. I had to tell that story because it's here. I am telling you the story now, but I love it. I love it. And, and I, I got to say, you are made to do this. You're made to tell the stories. You're made to be behind the mic. You're just made to ask questions. Both of you. Uh, it, it feels so comfortable being on with you. So just keep it up and keep enjoying it and you'll be in that place where you you will never allow a shovel of dirt to be thrown over your childhood curiosity i see it on your face now it's there and so we just got to make sure that zoe knows never to allow that dirt being thrown over her own childhood curiosity all right what better place to end than there no, I got a, I got a question. Oh, oh yeah, you did. Go ahead. Last question for you. Because as I just admitted, I'm going off on this adventure. Uh, I'm going. It just sounds so crazy to say it. I am going to try to reshape healthcare. And like the reality is, I'm just stepping 
into the water. I actually dove in, but I have very little idea exactly where to go. Where would you recommend that I start asking my questions to? Who would you recommend that I sit down with? And where, where are all these doctors who are feeling a sense of tension or stress and are driving a hundred miles to see a therapist and paying in cash because they don't want anybody to know about it. Like how, how would you recommend setting something up so that I could fill a room with those doctors and allow them to go through an exercise like that and to all walk out feeling connected and better about themselves. So I've got two answers. Unless you want to jump in quick. No, no, go ahead, Colin. Um, One, I would say, just as a caution, I wouldn't assume the burnout is everywhere. Um, As we've seen on this program and many doctors I know, they're frustrated. There's a there's a lot of problems, but there's different varying varying levels to this. Just like the frontline workers in New York City a number of months ago experienced this whole pandemic in a way that none of the rest of us did, right? Um, I think it would be very interesting your idea to try something like this through Zoom. Everybody's getting more comfortable with these this technology. It's hard to get a lot of people together at the same time. It's hard sometimes just to get three people together. Um, that can be a challenge. You know, a challenging job even with um, with uh, technology. That's that's one answer. The other answer, I think there is a lot to be optimistic about. One, the fact that someone like you is taking this up and having conversations, because we need to have better conversations and more productive ones and and more civil ones about this. And when you explore like we have, all these people doing amazing things. I mean. Everywhere from a doctor in outer space to a former Navy SEAL doctor to two doctors who have been to Antarctica, one that's met to the Dalai Lama, one that operated on Mother Teresa, one that operated on Peyton Manning, on and on and on. There's people that still have this deep passion for what they went into. They love it every day. Not every moment, but every day they love being there. And I think that's really helpful too. So one suggestion, I I would love to hear you do this, Cal. Um, I've enjoyed every interview we've done, but the one that stands out in my my mind is Debbie Shetty. So Dr. Shetty, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon in India. He's one of the most famous doctors in India. Uh, One, he did the very first neonatal heart surgery on a six-day-old baby on the subcontinent. Um, And two, he operated on Mother Teresa and served as her personal physician for a year. Got to know her very, I think he operated on her twice, actually, saved her life. But those are very cool things what he is also known for is starting the Narayana Health System. And this is one of the largest health systems in India. It is a for-profit, publicly traded health system that by policy will not deny care to anybody. And they're able to do this profitably, which seems impossible here in the United States. But it's not impossible there. And we went into this. We talked about how this is, how agile they are with their technology. They have Microsoft developing their EHR the way they want it the way they need it, um, and they use the economies of scale. So if you go there and you 
say you need something simple like a total knee, you have somebody who does that and their team all day long, and that's the only type of surgery they do. And they've gotten the cost down as low as they possibly can. As he says, cash money is the fuel that lets us do what we do. He understands business, but he also understands, you know, this is a man with his own hands has saved thousands of children and indirectly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other people. I mean, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. But what I learned from that is there are people doing things all over the world, making things possible. And we get so tunnel visioned here in the United States that we lose sight of that. You know, the world is a giant laboratory. And talking to people like him, I would love to hear you have a conversation with him. Um, he is going to make an impact on the United States, whether we like it or not. In the Cayman Islands today, there is a Narayana Health Hospital. They are ready to start taking Americans. And I think, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but I think, in my opinion, we're going to start seeing companies like Walmart offering choices to their employees. You don't have to go to the Cayman Islands, but if you go to a place like that, you're going to pay no copay. We'll put you up for a week there. If you want to go somewhere else, you're going to have to pay a higher insurance premium. That's one possibility. But whether we like it or not, change is going to come, and it could come from not from the Republicans, Democrats, not from this hospital system or that, but it could come from a place we don't even expect it. Yeah. The problem is if we wait for it to come from our government, we're in trouble. Um, and uh, there's actually uh, my comment to your question is, first of all, um, when we're interviewing people, the serendipity of answers, we, we think we're going to talk to somebody about their work taking photographs in Antarctica and they start talking about changes in healthcare. So every single person we talk to in healthcare has ideas and has an, a feeling for where things should go. It's uh, different, there's different approaches, but at least some everybody feels like change has to happen. So you could go and just uh, grab 20 doctors on the street. You can go to UNC Medical School and get um, a smattering of senior doctors and training doctors, get them in a room and you'd get some great answers from that. The other approach, and I think this is pretty important, is to go to, uh, to the top as well, because you have to understand the institutional background between everything that's going on. And we had Lloyd Minor on, who is the, um, Dr. Lloyd Minor, who is the Dean of Stanford Medical School. Uh, and he was incredibly forward thinking in his research and also in the way he's structuring healthcare and his, the way he's addressing this. And it's just one approach. You could do the same with Mayo Clinic, which has a completely different approach, or Harvard Medical School, which has a completely different approach as well. But you need to get the, those people um, to at least understand why they're working in the system and what kind of changes are actually feasible to do. So I think it's a top and bottom approach. Um, and I'll let you know uh, our little secret, and that's we have a wish list. And it's like, who's on the top of our wish list? Who would we love to talk about? And I would love to sit down with Barack Obama and talk to him, not about politics, but, but about policy. I'd love to know how he came up with the idea of uh, the Affordable Care Act, where it, where it was good, where he would have liked to take it, why he saw, why he was doing what he did, and just to sort of get that sense. And you might be in a position where you could get him on. I have a feeling we aren't. <laughs> well, like I, I actually was thinking about that the other day uh, because I was wondering looking at everything at the whole landscape 
that we're all seeing now. Uh, what he would have done differently if he knew what was about to transpire. And if he could rub on that same lamp and the genie would come out, what he would have wished he would have done. And that, see, that's a kind of, it's a crazy question. Because here I am, I just announced on your podcast that I'm going to reshape healthcare, <laughs> and the President of the United States couldn't actually do it. <laughs> and it go it just it go, really goes to show you how big this is, and also how important what you're doing is, because the more of these conversations, the better. It just it's so necessary in this time. And I, I'm not sure this pandemic is gonna end anytime soon. And the longer it goes on, the more relevant these conversations are gonna become. So I think you're in just the right place. Yeah, same to you, sir. I think uh, this is a fun, fun space to play in, but it's, uh, I think we're doing some good out there. At least based on some of the feedback we get from from listeners, we uh, you know we've connected people in different ways and exposed them to different things, and you know it's um, it's just an amazing journey. It's uh, not something I um, I ever thought we'd get into at this point, Keith. But yeah. I, I wouldn't give this up for anything. Well, and, I look I look forward to clinking glasses of wine with both of you. Uh, we're and, definitely going to make that happen. Even if uh, we have to do it at arm's length like this, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, <laughs> we'll do it. And um, really uh, quick here, Cal, uh, you know, we're a little over time. So um, let everybody know where they can find your podcast, learn more about you, your work, and, uh, you know, connect with you. Podcast is called Big Questions with Cal Fussman. And you can get it just about anywhere that serves podcasts. And if you would like to send an email, you can reach out to me at calfussman.com. And I try and get back pretty quickly. And I'm very curious to know what the thoughts of people in healthcare are right now, because it's those thoughts that are gonna guide me forward. And I'm very, very grateful for both of your thoughts top bottom approach and just allowing the questions to push things forward as opposed to an agenda. I think that's the secret sauce here. Uh, because if somebody thinks that you're coming to preach to them or that you're coming to tell them what to do, it's just, it's probably not gonna end up nicely. But if you're here to listen, it's a different story. Well, Cal, I can't tell you enough how, how much fun this has been. Um, I can also tell you that Lyndon Johnson may never have known you know, what an impact that letter ma made. And <laughs> you learned a little bit today, but you are making an impact out there and a lot of people, a lot of people you know, admire what you do and, and, and who you are. And I have for some time, I mean, 
you know, we're, we're just amateurs in this game, but I've learned a lot from you. And it's just a real privilege to have you on today. Do ne never refer to yourselves as amateurs again. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Today, you are professionals. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's the high note we'll leave it on. But <laughs> Cal, thank you so much, everyone. That is Cal Fussman. We'll put links up to everything so you can find them. And whenever, wherever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>